Welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I am Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. This topic absolutely fascinates me. As you know, I'm not a tech engineer. I'm a humanities instructor. And so I look at the dark web through the lens of culture and society, not through uh, technical nodes, command and control servers or botnets. Yet, you know, from the cultural standpoint, I believe this may be the next frontier of free speech and freedom of thought. The dark web, it has a sinister and almost criminal reputation, and really it's for good reason. As it has been said, you know, even good law-abiding citizens should just never go there and always stay away. This is the place to go. It's said to buy drugs illegally, to say vile and disgusting things, or even view child pornography. Terrorists, they frequent the dark web to hide and to organize. We know that illegal transactions through Bitcoin, infamous on the dark web. So how in the world could I even say that this could go mainstream? Before I make a case why I believe the dark web will become mainstream, and in fact, its its usage is already growing dramatically, first we need to understand what in the world I'm even talking about when I speak of the dark web so we don't just simplify it down to superficial things. So if you think of your search engines like Google, uh, they let you probe the internet and you might think that's the entire internet, but actually you are wrong. In fact, this surface web you see every day online, it's barely scratching the surface of the entire internet, literally. You know, below social media, Google, your favorite puppy spa website, uh, the one you may have accessed even to listen to this particular podcast, for example. Underneath that flows other layers of the internet that you can't even find through a search engine or typing in a specific URL. There's more. There's so much more with incredible potential. And really, it isn't so hard to get at at all. I mean, I could get you on it today in about five minutes, but I'll get more into that sort of thing later. So this thing, this thing that we know as the Internet, it is vast. It is insanely vast and deep. It's far beyond what we just know of it on the surface. So I live in Florida, many of you know, and I I can go to the beach, I can spend a day at the beach, and I can look out at the ocean from from sitting there on the shore and and I can see how big the gulf is. I can see it all the way out over the horizon. But you know if I would then charter a boat and I would go cruising just around the around the beaches and hundreds of these people do this every single day in Florida. I get even a greater understanding of how big the ocean is. But you know, you really don't understand and appreciate how huge the ocean is until you go real deep. I mean, once I went deep sea fishing and to get there 
first of all, you have to have a, a powerful boat and you have to navigate and roll out there about two or three hours offshore. And by the time you get out this deep, there's this shelf drop off where the depth of the water goes down immensely. And when you get out there, that's where all the real big fish are, the the grouper, uh, you know, and, and once you, I was out there and you start fishing and you just look around you in all directions and you see there's no sign of land anywhere, just your one little speck in the dot of this massive ocean. And then you really can appreciate the size, the scope and the power of the ocean. And I think this analogy is really what the World Wide Web is, the Internet. We get the Internet is big and we understand how powerful and important it is. But the depth of what we experience from it on land every day is known as the surface web. But it's nothing compared to going a little bit deeper. And that's called the deep web or going all the way out into the ocean to experience the dark web. So there's really actually three internets the surface web the deep web and the dark web kind of getting the point the surface web everything that's publicly available and accessible through your search engine you can even type in a url in your browser it'll come up in this surface world you know your moves are tracked and you're monitored and you're evaluated by algorithms there's these crawlers that are constantly scouring the web for new data, new information, and indexing this data. Uh, This is the area of the web you are in full view almost always. Now, of course, we have VPNs or we have search engines that maybe do a better job of masking identity, like, say, DuckDuckGo. But for the most part, what you do and what you type, how long you're, you look at something in Instagram, what videos you watch on YouTube, where even your GPS on your smartphone tracks you to be, um, it's all recorded. For the most part, this is where we live online. But the second level called the deep web, I mean, I'm not, we're not real interested in that for this web. It's sometimes called the invisible web. And it's all that content on the web that's just not indexed by these search engines. So you don't pull them up. They would be like your email clients or online banking websites that's hidden from the general public unless you access it from the front or pages that are just inaccessible from from crawlers. And, you know, so beneath that service surface web, you have this deeper web. I mean, you wouldn't ever go to it or use it unless, of course, maybe you're a software person, a tech engineer working on some applications for the front facing side of the business and the Internet. But it's a huge chunk of the the web. But of course, what we're focused on is the dark web. And this is a totally different beast. You know, underneath the surface, surface and the deep web is the dark web. And I guess you could call it like this complex matrix and they're encrypted websites, and they let users remain anonymous. And you do need specialized, yet often free software to get there. A few of them, Tor, T-O-R, Freenet, F-R-E-E-N-E-T, and I2, the number 2P. Uh, You know, I have personally actually downloaded Tor. Incredibly simple and easy, just like any other search engine that you can download. 
in all honesty, I can't really tell you about the other two because I've never actually tried to, to use them. I do have to say this, though, from just a functional usage standpoint, when you use Tor, uh, its browsing experience is much slower sometimes than normal browsers because of the way that it makes you anonymous. I also find that you know some of the websites that you try and pull up that you would want to use every day, uh, they're actually blocked by some businesses coming from the Tor browser. And it's probably because they can't identify, track, monitor you. They just simply don't want you coming in anonymous, anonymously. But you know, also, I suppose from a, just a pure business standpoint, the argument could be made that these anonymous users... If they're trying to hit on a business website, they may have bad intentions or or to troll somebody or simply just cause trouble. So thus they just lock you out completely. Not all websites will block out Tor browser users, but there are a number of them that will. You know, the the mainstream in general uh, from the surface web, they are incredibly distrustful of the dark web. Some of it is absolutely valid and other parts of it you know they just don't want to let anybody do anything on their website anonymously so the words in general and i i say my thesis is that the dark web is going to become mainstream when you hear the word slow speed and blocked websites that surely does not inspire one to think wow i really want to get on this network uh, and, and it surely doesn't bolster my thesis that this is going to go mainstream, except there's one huge, massive, invaluable power of the dark web that it has something that you simply cannot get anywhere from the surface web. And that thing is anonymity. This elusive and powerful thing of being unknown, untracked, and free to express without any constraints. This is why I believe people over the next few years are ultimately going to be drawn to the dark web more and more. And again, of course, this anonymity is is the danger as well as the attraction and this is why society has not arrived to accepting the dark web just yet. You know, the potential to be a mighty tool that could tip the balance back towards personal freedoms and away from the big tech giants on the clear web and those prying eyes of continuously more aggressive government mass surveillance systems, including the United States, is a very powerful weapon if it's deployed properly. But change, as we know in anything, it's never easy for humans. Changing our behavior is a self-engineering challenge and process that has very few equals, as all of us know this, who've tried diets or exercise routines or any other bad habit modification. And to change our behavior, we now use online Every single day without even thinking, it is a major step. So we are literally programmed right now to behave the way we do online. Big Tech did a masterful job of behavior modification. And to deprogram to something else is no little task. So for me to even make a case for the mainstreaming of the dark web, 
psychologically, we have some ground that we have to cover. So what could become a strong enough motivation or feeling that would compel us or motivate us to take action and move society in the democratic world from the surface web to the dark web. So let's talk about the most important motivator first of all, and this is the one I think that will drive more people faster. Freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Since the independence of the United States of America and infused across all democracies globally ever since then is this idea that we have the right of expression. George Washington, 1783, said this, quote, If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter, end quote. You know, this freedom of speech has been ingrained in our minds in America. We hold it as a right, as something we inherently are born with in this country, I think all of us understand this concept of freedom of speech in general terms, but few of us have really looked at it in detail, and even more so how this freedom of speech has been slowly ripped away from us. But it's worth our time to know it historically, as if we all forget this, it will eventually collapse our democracy to chaos. It is that much of a cornerstone to a free and democratic society. The very sad truth of this matter is no matter how much we boldly proclaim we believe in it, we've actually been rather meekly and mildly surrendering free speech since we, well, almost ever since we proclaimed it. But before we look at the history of free speech and its decline in this country, let's define it in its purest form. So basically, when I say free speech, I am talking about the freedom of an individual or a community to articulate their opinions and ideas. And they can do with this without fear of retaliation, of censorship or legal action. The term freedom of expression, you know, sometimes we use this synonymously, uh, but this includes any act of seeking, receiving, and imparting information or ideas regardless of the medium used. This does include our modern digital age. So after the United States embedded this in the Bill of Rights, the concept over the next 20, 30 years began to spread like wildfire. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and it went global. Until now, we have a number of organizations that have codified and put this into human rights. So the freedom of expression is recognized as a human right under Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights also known as the UDHR, and it's recognized in international human rights law and in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, ICCPR. And so this is important because you can see after the United States codified this legally, 
It's now went everywhere. And here's what they say. Everyone shall have the right to hold opinions without interference. And everyone shall have the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to seek, receive, impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, either orally, in writing, or in print, in the form of art, or through any other media of his or her choice. This is the purest, most pristine view of free speech. Yet, it sure didn't take long before governments began to intervene and take things away. Soon amendments started emerging and arguing that the exercise of these fr- of this free speech, it carries uh, certain special duties and responsibilities and may, for the respect of or the rights or reputation of others be taken away. And, you know, anytime a government puts in an amendment and says that they may do for, uh, actually means they're going to do, for, do it, and respect the rights of reputation of others for the protection of national security or of public order or of public health or morals. Look, if you don't get this, you can't get the beauty of the dark web today and why it ultimately appeals so much to the masses. So as you can see from these amendments, uh, basically these amendments are really a nice way of taking back what they already gave you. You know, shortly after granting freedom of speech and freedom of expression to the masses, there may be restrictions. Yeah, right. I mean, that's just code word for those in powers that there will be a time in which they may uh, take it back. And then when necessary for politicians, when necessary means when we decide we don't like what you say and we need to take it to keep control. And ah, the brilliant for the protection of the national security. I mean, who wouldn't want to give to be safe and who wouldn't want to be protected by their fair and honest governmental agencies of course, I mean, we can trust them. If we can't trust our governmental agencies, our bureaucracies, then who can we trust, right? But then my favorite reason to limit free speech, also codified in amendments, for public health or morals, they have the right to take away your free speech. Oh, really? So we now have a 100% consensus on health issues that we can deem something infallible. I mean, our medical doctors would never get anything wrong, would they? I mean, I'm not even going to go there with COVID-19. Or I'll probably get both liberals and conservatives indignantly upset with me immediately. Because if I go down that rabbit hole, I'll never emerge. Uh, But let's just say there is never 100% consensus about any health thing ever. Okay, but back to the topic, the morals. This is even better than public health. So you can take away free speech based on morals. Whose moral code is it? Who are they to tell me what is or is not a moral code to live by? That sure is painting a very broad brush. You know, I want all of us to get how America, the land of the free, really has been slowly eroding freedom of speech since 
our beginnings. Just want to run down some actual historical events so you can see the degradation and its unending march away from free speech. And it began way, way before the internet was even a thought. 1790, the Bill of Rights is codified into law. We have freedom of speech. Just eight years later, 1798, upset by critics of his administration, President John Adams successfully pushed for the passage of what was known as the Alien and Seditions Act. And basically, the Seditions Act, in particular, it targeted supporters of Thomas Jefferson by restricting criticism that can be made against the president. There's one shot at it. The Freedom Comst- the Federal Comstock Act of 1873 grants the post office the authority to censor mail containing material that is, quote, obscene, lewd, or lascivious. Uh, again, there's that moral code of, of the government stepping in to tell you. 1897, Illinois, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, they become the first states to officially ban desecration of the United States flag. 1918, another's the Sedition Act targeted anarchists, socialists, left-wing activists who opposed U.S. participation in the war. 1973, Miller versus California, Supreme Court establishes an obscenity standard known as the Miller Test. 1978, FCC versus Pacifica, the Supreme Court grants the FCC communication the power to find networks for broadcasting certain content. Now, you may personally agree with some of these restrictions. Maybe even you agree with all of these restrictions on on these issues. But here's the problem. When you restrict one side of the coin, eventually, someday, somehow, you can be on the receiving end of that same restriction just as easily as you were on the side of agreeing to restrict somebody else. It's an incredibly slippery slope. You know, the Christian community would surely agree with restricting obscene language on TV, but then ultimately find themselves censored on YouTube for going against a pro-abortion crowd. This vicious cycle of restriction. Restrict them, not me. Get them, but not me. I'm saying what's right, but they're saying what's wrong. It never ends. And each time each side celebrates banning or taking away from the other side, the only one that's gaining power in that struggle is the government. And the only one who's not having their voice restricted would be the government. Maybe an old quote needs to be revived for life in 2020. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I believe that was said, I think it was around the French Revolution and uh, Voltaire or maybe some writer associated with Voltaire. I can't remember exactly, but you know, you get the point. So we have been, we have seen throughout history as always happens with all governments in all civilizations of all time, they tempt to get bigger and bigger and control more and more and more. We are literally watching our free speech erode in front of our very eyes over time. Ironically, this time with big tech, 
they are almost as responsible as governments. But we're going to get into them a little bit later. Freedom of expression and speech then are not recognized as being absolute by government. And really, they continue to gobble up more and more of this with amendments and court rulings. Now, some of these limitations that have been put in place, they would seem good and honest for just about everybody, uh, regardless of situation. Things like libel, slander, copyright violation, trade secrets, food labeling, non-disclosure agreements. These are pretty functional things. And we can agree that we shouldn't be you know, we shouldn't have freedom of expre- expression to hurt someone else in, in those environments. Yet other things, they get dicier. Obscenity. To whom? What one person views as obscene, maybe not by someone else. And who's going to make that value judgment for the entire country, a country of 350 million people? Incitement. One person's incitement may be another person's protest, fighting words. One person's offense would not even register on another person. The scariest and deepest rabbit hole of them all, and I think causes the most frustration and fear, is the idea of the offense principle, whereby we can limit free speech if someone becomes offended where you can't say things offensive to others and is being used more and more frequently in the justification of speech limitations. Oh my goodness, what a dangerous fire to play in. Society trying to find consensus on speech deemed offensive. Our modern culture wrestles with factors such as the extent, the duration, the motives of the speaker, ease in which it would be avoided, this has turned into a hot mess. With the evolution of the digital age, application of freedom of speech becomes more controversial as this cancel culture gains steam. The whimsical, you can't have this opinion or that opinion, and to merely state your opinion, we hear now, Oh, I'm offended by that. Seems to have no end and could ultimately drive more and more people underground to communicate freely to escape this dizzying display of everyone seemingly offended by something of cataclysmic proportions. I'm sure even me saying everybody is offended easily is offensive to someone listening today. The absurdity in society is reaching just ridiculous proportions. And it probably isn't hard to envision a conversation like, I'm offended that you were offended by what I'm offended at. Round and round we go. Where we stop, nobody knows. So free speech and freedom of expression from the governmental side is one thing that ultimately can drive people to the dark web. Seeking a place, a forum, or the ability to hear things, to speak about things in a 100% anonymous way. I mean, literally on the dark web, you can create an account, 
It doesn't have to have your name or anything on it. No one will ever know what you, who you are. You can read things. You can say things. You can express things. And that need to express is deeply human all the way back to the beginning of humanity. Um, and at our core, there is this innate drive to be able to express ourselves and our opinions. And the dark web provides it. The surface web does not, unless, of course, you go along with the conforming crowd. As long as you say and speak and sound like the prevailing attitude or opinion of the time, you're completely okay. This brings us to the dominance of big tech. Sure, they say they are an open platform, that they care about free expression of ideas. But, I mean, let's be honest. You can only express what they allow. And if not, you're going to get banned or controlled or deplatformed. They control your speech and every other user's speech in social media. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they all do it the same way. And how do they get this done? Oh, it's really simple. The community guidelines or the community standards. You know, those 20 or so pages of specifics that one must say or not say and what they must do or not do to belong to the quote-unquote community. You know that document that when you go to sign up for a free online account that you have the right to read and you agree with the community guidelines, that thing that no one ever looks at, it's really, this is where it happens. And it's comical when you think about it. They express to the community how incredibly important it is that the community follows the community guidelines and that everyone speak in alignment with the community guidelines at all times. Basically, in shorthand, they're saying that our community is free to say what they want to say as long as they say what the community guidelines say it is okay to say. I mean, it's the antithesis of free speech. It's a subtle yet pure echo chamber. You do not have free speech rights on social media. I mean, just go ahead and try. Find something in their community guidelines that they're not allowing. And see how long it takes before they take that down or you get censored. So one perfect example, Facebook, a lot of news on this. You know, COVID-19, they say they side with the WHO. Just try for fun. Try and go out there, post something on your Facebook account that you completely disagree with COVID-19. And here's an alternative viewpoint and post that out there. Um, and do that over and over and, and uh, see how long it takes for them to catch you. You know, sure, they, they don't catch everything all the time outside of the guidelines, but eventually they'll get you. And if it gets spread enough and you get enough traction on something, they will find you and they will get you. Uh, also, their community guidelines, they're not getting any shorter. They're not removing guidelines. They're getting longer and longer and longer, which mirrors exactly how oppressive regimes or governments uh, build. They continue to 
take away rights from people and give more rights to themselves. I mean, it's just a facet of how humans and governments have always worked. So eventually these restrictions can lead many looking for, I don't know, maybe a range of opinions and the ability to express themselves separate and away from these social media platforms. Another reason I believe we see a move from the clear web to the dark web is people, as they get more and more educated on how they are being tracked, surveilled, monitored for money made by corporations, they will leave the mainstream platforms or use them just for generally fluffy public stuff. Want to see pictures of your family members, dogs, cats, nice, easy, non-confrontational stuff, sports conversation, where literally there's no in-depth intellect knowledge, and they, they may continue to use it for that. But, I mean, let's be real. Every second of every day you're online, you're being monitored, and you're being monetized. There's not a moment where you're doing something that corporations are not attempting to use your online actions to sell ads to someone to sell you something. This is how they make money. I love this quote. Don't know who said it, but if you're if you are given a product app or software for free, the product isn't for sale, you are for sale. They are making money off of you and your actions, your clicks, your GPS, your whatever, your searches. Uh, these companies are not nonprofits. They're not impartial platforms designed to provide a forum for free speech. They are money-making giants. Just watch news on Wall Street for a day, and then you're going to understand this. These companies are the richest corporations in the history of the world. Apple Computer at one point was a $1 trillion company. That's more than a vast number of the GDP of entire countries. They do not sell a product. They sell you. Social media products are selling you. And we're starting to realize this more and more. And for many, it's just downright offensive. And it's going to drive people to the dark web. Ah, If only it was just corporations, though, that were selling us. Uh, Governments are almost worse if not worse altogether. In my timeline of erosion of governmental free speech, I intentionally left off maybe the biggest power grab ever in our government in eroding freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and it happened after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And our privacy was annihilated with this. The Patriot Act, as never in American history in one fell swoop, The United States government took not just incremental pieces of our freedom and our privacy. It took out a chunk, a big chunk. We can thank George Bush for this after 9-11. And then we can thank Barack Obama for reauthorizing it in 2012. And then we can also thank our current politicians that are in power for continuing to erode our our, uh, free speech and our freedom to privacy, and it's it's a totally bipartisan issue. So on J- June 1st, 2015, after the Patriot Act was put into place, uh, under Barack Obama, we had the U.S. Freedom Act. Quite ironic, the name freedom, as this act does anything but grant freedom. 
which it became law on June 2nd in 2015. It reenacted all the surveillance stuff of the Patriot Act. Uh, but also, uh, they tried to like do the sleight of hand thing where they amended to disallow the NSA to continue mass phone data collection. You realize that through backhanded means and interpretation of rules and I guess you could almost call it just flat out taking stuff. Your your phones could be monitored at all times. And so it's funny. Uh, so the Freedom Act, which made sure that the NSA wouldn't just collect this data anymore, put a funny twist of words and required instead of the NSA directly taking the data, phone companies then would have to retain the data and the NSA then would have to go get it from the phone company when it needed it. Oh, but we'll require a search warrant. Uh, of course, you'd never be able to see any of that stuff. It's all happening behind the scenes. But but there's our freedom act. It freed us up so much, don't you think? Uh, how very nice of our government to at least add in a search warrant. How American of them, I guess. Uh, let me give you, let me give some small quiet little golf claps to our government for sticking up for us. So nice of them. Uh, but as we move past Obama into Trump in November 2019, uh, they renewed the renewal of the Patriot Act was part of that one of those stopgap legislations. You know how they never do a budget anymore ever and they just kind of redo these stopgap legislations versus shutting scare everybody. They're going to shut down the government and then they throw together some piece of garbage and continue on. Well, they threw in this unmitigated surveillance along with one of those uh but then it expired and amazingly well not amazingly just because well congress is so partisan they actually can't do anything and so they couldn't get it reauthorized but the senate in good measure uh threw out one final hail mary uh to keep uh us being surveilled and it and it passed uh in march of 20 march 27th of of 2020 uh they threw something out there that that allowed them to do some wonderful things to us like giving law enforcement agencies the fbi and the cia the power to look into u.s citizens browser history without even a warrant how wonderfully free republic of our senate to do that for us bottom line republican democrat they love to spy on you and they love to do it under the name of they're protecting us. I mean, with friends like this, who needs enemies? I want to say right here, a lot of people who are good, honest, working Americans, when they say, well, I don't care if they look at what I do. I mean, they're going to be incredibly bored by looking through my browsing history. That attitude right there is incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous and it's short-sighted. Yes, you today, your browsing history may not matter to you. But you know in regimes where somebody has a different attitude than yours and they see your browsing history and they see the websites you go to and the things you post on different websites can literally throw people in jail. I'm not saying the U.S. is on the verge of this. But I also would not underestimate corrupt politicians to take that data and use it against its citizens because they do it all the time in other places. So just finally being sick of the surveillance, 
and doing anything to get out from under the oppressive eyes and the surveillance of Big Brother will drive people to the dark web to communicate, get information, browse topics, uh, especially anything with politics or health or of any sort of a controversial nature. You know, sure, puppy photos and vacations to the beach, they may still be used in the clear web. But to find truth and diverse thought and to express oneself without government looking at browsing history and where you're going, people will start to go deeper into the web. The last one is eventually, as it gets harder and harder to find anything outside the mass media or government-approved group think allowed by media and the tech giants, people will be driven to find and explore censored ideas and voices. You know, Americans and all free thinkers naturally have this little subversive streak in them. We want access to free thought, books, literature, studies, analysis of things that are not accepted or condoned by society. I mean, this isn't for everyone, but for some it is incredibly vital. If you tell an American you can't do this or you must do this, you you can't do the other, it's almost like a natural subversive streak where we'll seek out the other guaranteed. And I think as the surface web gets more and more corrupt, it's more and more evaluated and assessed, the more the cancel culture comes in, the more all of these things are just monitored, people are going to move. We see this in action right now on the dark web as people in places like China, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, or other repressive regimes will congregate, voice free, freely voice their opinions, share their ideas, attempt to organize, post things, images anonymously in the, in the hopes that the world will see and understand and others can be exposed to these atrocities that some state-run media they don't allow give you a really high profile example of this edward snowden you know a very famed whistleblower of the nsa illegal surveillance tactics he published all his data on the dark web it needed to get out it got out and and it definitely brought to light some of these problems From time to time, book censoring in the Middle Ages and, say, the Spanish Inquisition uh, happened and it drove books underground. It drove science underground for a time. And that material circulated in non-public places, quiet, dark corners, quiet rooms and gatherings. And this material in 2020 is going to be the dark web. It's going to end up, that's going to be the the gathering place for these types of things. I have seen some clear web alternatives emerge that claim to not stifle free speech, for example. You know, places designed for individuals that move elsewhere after their views are censored across the big name social media platforms. You know, even alternative streaming TV or website or websites. I mean, they're valiantly trying to fight against the hyper partisan mainstream outlets 
And I find their causes, they're good and they're valid and they're important. But let's really face it, they won't solve any of the surveillance issues. And there's nothing that can prevent in the clear web data capture and being outed or canceled. Plus, I think many of these clear web pages, they they can create an even worse filter bubble of group thinking conformity. So I just don't, I don't think the differentiation between big tech, big media is enough of a difference. Although I do like the concept, you know, as the destruction of our free speech continues, the surveillance of our lives by both companies and government get more intrusive. The ability to gain access to a vast range of opinion shrinks in our conformist world, the ability to freely, openly, honestly express your opinion becomes more and more censored or outright banned online through the web of these community guidelines. People can and they will seek out other options. Look, I get there are dangers on the dark web as they're, they're 100% real and they are valid. There are places where very bad and very evil people, they lurk out there. But heck, they're really bad and very evil people on the clear web too. We just assume they're not or pretend they don't go or belong to the areas of the web I am at. Are you, are you really so sure of that? As I close this podcast out, I'm not here to tell you how to get on the dark web or even tell you that you should go on the dark web. I gave you some some web browsers. Uh, you could check that out. This is all for you to decide. If you are interested, you can find out yourself. Just Google, you know, uh, how to safely go on the dark web. Then Google social media on the dark web. They're out there. Or important websites on the dark web. Educate yourself. And then if you decide it's worth it, explore. If you're not ready to go on it yet, just read about it, as there are thousands of articles written and really easy to understand. You don't have to be a tech engineer about the dark web. Education on the topic is all up to you. Having been on the dark web myself, if you are careful, I mean, really, most of most of what you see out there isn't seedy. It's not some dark underbelly of a ghetto or a red light district many ways. Unless, of course, you know, you go out there looking for it, you're going to find it. But rather, in many ways, it's just like plain old suburbia and the same websites that you access and use in the clear web, you can pull them up as well. But I do believe in another five to ten years... There, this will be the place where people are going to go to seek knowledge. As if things continue to progress down this current path we are on, our free and open internet is going to be nothing more than communist-like groupthink, one-mind beehive, propaganda machine, and if we're honest, I fear actually we may be there already and we just don't fully appreciate it or realize it yet so educate yourself on the topic as it may be the one tool we have outside of the machine of government and the big tech titans that allows people to grab back 
freedom of speech, and freedom of expression. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I really hope you found value in this topic. It simply is too dangerous for all of us to take our free speech for granted. I hope this gave you pause to think about that. You know, I generally publish new episodes Mondays and Wednesdays. So if you click the like or the follow, uh, you will be alerted when new episodes come available. But until the next episode, I hope you have a wonderful week and a wonderful day. Take care.